Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Jerry Aliberti, and he's the principal at Pro Excel. So Jerry, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, what really caught my attention is you were really breaking out the phases of entrepreneurship and you did a great job sort of communicating what business owners went through. Talk to me about your entrepreneurial experiences. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my first experience was uh, about six or so years ago, I started a decorative concrete company. I've always been into unique ideas, right? And for me, architecture, you know, I have a degree in architecture. First, I started in engineering. I actually have a de- I actually went to high school for architecture as well. So wow. it, it goes back, yeah, it goes back quite a ways. So I always knew I was going to get into construction. So uh, my first entrepreneur journey was a decorative concrete company. After a couple of years, I realized, you know, what it's tough to it's tough to sell that here in the Northeast where you have cold climates as well, right? Plus, um, probably wasn't something that I I really wanted to venture out into for thirty for thirty more years of my career. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, luckily for me, I didn't quit my job and and I was still working. So I've been in the construction business for twenty years, and then you know, over the past couple of years, I I realized that. Projects are, are are always pretty inconsistent. You know, there's a lot of turnover in the business, as we as we all very well know. It, it's a very seasonal career path as as well, right? So naturally, that that comes with the package. And so I kind of saw a gap where I said to myself, "Well, how how do I help smaller contractors who don't really have the resources to just keep hiring help? Kind of help them guide them." where they can have a little bit more of a predictable project success and, and help them with their efficiencies and help find their inefficiencies, right? And help them stay on schedule and create systems that they can bring from project to project. So over a, a year ago, it, it's been about a year now, I started ProSL and now journey. It's, it's really exciting, but how I, how I, um, how I mentioned in the post that uh, really caught your attention. It's, it's a big roller coaster ride. You know, it's uh you got to really have a strong why and really understand why you're taking this path and completely getting out of your comfort zone. I mean, completely getting out of your comfort zone. I'm in my 40s. My wife doesn't really work. I got two kids. I live just north of New York City. So, um, you know, I have a lot of pressure on me. And uh, But I'm, I'm up for it. I really love construction and, and I really love helping people and to me, my new entrepreneur journey, one of my main values is how do I help people more at a personal level and not so much always talking about people's bottom lines and profits and stuff, right? You know, I mean, that's important. That's important, of course. But I, I really want to help people at a personal level. So Sure, absolutely. So, you know, you, you did some entrepreneurship. Now it's it's brought you back. You struggled. You were in something that wasn't quite a fit, but you came back, which usually means to me that you probably, when you were younger, yeah, you had some entrepreneurial tendencies. Was that the case? Well, I was one of those kids who had the lemonade stand, you know, and um, 
No, I, I come from an Italian family, an immigrant family, and you know, I, I would I would pretend I was selling grapes, you know, where my father had leftover grapes for making wine and stuff. So it was always, I mean, did I make any money off of it? No. Did, did did all the neighbors laugh at it? Yeah, they did. But you know what? It was the mindset. It was the entrepreneur journey, right? And um, I think it really started to kick in for me when I was starting to reach my 30s and my mid-30s, you know, which is something. Something was taking over my body. Something was taking over my mind. Something was keeping me up from really waking up in the morning saying, I can't wait to go to work today. Like something different was happening. I knew I loved construction. I knew I wanted to stay into construction. So, Absolutely. So, you know, being part of different companies, you know, also working with smaller companies. I mean, what are the typical pitfalls that uh, owners or entrepreneurs run into? The larger companies have more resources, they've gotten there, but for the smaller companies trying to transition, what are the pitfalls, like the the mindsets they have to break? I think starting from the top, from the owner is a lot of the owners when they just started, and I think both of us can agree that when you just start a company, you know, you're involved in every detail of the project, right? it's, It's overwhelming. So I think starting from the top, the hardest part is task delegation is how do you start breaking away from being a part of every single detail and start delegating to your new hires, right? Then the next phase of that is, who are your new hires? Are you doing a great onboarding process? Do you have an onboarding process? Are you asking the right questions while you're onboarding? How are you attracting that new talent? You know, for people like us, we're on LinkedIn. So we're marketing ourselves and our companies through LinkedIn. And a lot of great companies are doing great job marketing, which is great because instead of you going to try to find people, the people are coming to you and they already kind of have a general understanding of what you're looking for and who you are as an owner and as a person and what your values are, right? And then also onboarding as well, you know, just just picking up a resume and, and asking, you know, hey, you know, I need you to do this, this and that. Can you do that? Yes, I can. Okay, well, you're hired. Well, Maybe why don't you go through the steps and kind of, you know, so my last job when I was an estimator, I was actually tested with estimating. I was asked, hey, for a simple application, what would be your crew size? What would be your productions? Well, why not do something like that? You know, and I gained trust right away, even before I was hired and I was put on the books. You know, okay, so we're starting with test delegation, then we're going into into hiring. Well, now you hired these people, right? And now, and now you're has delegating and 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 you're hiring people. Well, now how do you start building your jobs? You know, and that's where that's where you where where, where you're bringing in different people. And you don't want to be a micromanager, but at the same time, those first couple of months, you're testing your new people out, right? And, and they're bringing in their own new skills as well, right? So now their new skills are being put onto foreman that have been working with you now for a couple of years. And now, you know, that's where the chaos starts. And that's where the miscommunication starts. So before we go into that big area, which which I'm super interested in, you talked about task delegation. And, you know, you're thinking about the entrepreneur. Is there kind of a opportunity or prioritization that you think about? First of all, the owner is doing everything. Or is your is your thing to delegate something or delegate starting with non-essential tasks or non-risky? Or do you have any philosophy around that? Well, listen, as the owner, you're the top guy, right? And you need to delegate. You need to do the tasks that are most important and are top priority for the company as a whole, right? So 
I believe you just mentioned it now. So what you got to do is you got to just make yourself a, a sheet every single morning. I guess, you know, either every morning or the night before you leave and say, okay, what are the top priorities that I need to get done? What are the top tasks that I need to get done to get these projects complete or projects started or estimating whatever it may be. And then you need to take those top priorities that you know are going to drive your company to overall success and take it as an owner at that point and then start delegating to the people that you're hiring. And then as you grow, you also want to take those top priorities and, and, and hand them off to your top, top management as well as you grow. But, you know, assuming you're a small contractor and you're still part of the day-to-day -day operations is you need to prioritize your time. You know, if there's something that you can hand off to someone who's making $20 an hour and they can do just as good as you, hand it off to the person who's making $20 an hour. If there's something that you need to hand off to the person who's making $50 an hour, hand it off to that person. And as you grow, you'll know more or less what skill level is required for a particular task. Yeah, sounds good. Now let's go into, you started to hire, you've worked with some of these people. Now you have to bring in, uh, I, I think you assume other trades and other groups as you're expanding. The chaos starts. So how do you, how do you make sure the chaos doesn't start or you minimize it? Well, it all comes down to communication, right? Is is um how are the projects starting to begin with? Because if you're not starting your projects the right way, they're just going to be a disaster from day one to the end. There's stats all over the internet that say 80% of the projects all end over budget, which is crazy because contractors can make a lot of money, but they can lose a lot of money. And it's so yeah. easy to lose money in construction. It, it's ridiculous how, how how easy it is. So one, it all starts with communication and then there's planning. I actually just published an article on on uh, Equipment World magazine that I, I advise people to check out. And, and, and these are the things that I talk about is communication, it's planning. You know, your first couple of months, you got to get all your submittals done. You got to get all your paperwork as much as you possibly can get done before that first shovel hits the ground. Because once that first shovel hits the ground, you're going to have another whole array of problems that start happening, right? There's design issues. There's the community that's complaining, especially if you're in an area where there's a lot of politicians, which I've been, unfortunately, I've been in several projects where that where that's been. Um, um, and, and, and there's just a a whole array of problems that happen after that. So your first couple of months of any project really need to be hit extremely hard as far as paperwork goes. And then yeah. you need to assemble your teams really quickly as well. If it's a small job and you only have one super, well, then that's your team, right? But, you know, as you start growing and as you start having multiple supers, multiple foremen, multiple, you know, maybe multiple project managers as well, you need to assemble your teams quick. Because what I've noticed, especially with the larger companies is, they nickel and dime the beginning of these projects. And, and it's crazy. You want to put these people on the payroll right away. You want to get everybody accustomed with each other, both at, at a personal level as well. You want yeah. you want your team to really become a team early on. In the Walk me through nickel and diming. Sorry, you said you want to get your team together quickly, but you said people nickel and dime you. Where's, what, what is that part you're referring to? So for example, right? You got to water the project. Now the next phase is setting up, you know, I'm talking about the civil side. I'm not too sure about the commercial side, but as far as the civil side goes, you got to get the engineer's office set up, right? So now you need to go find a, an office in a commercial building or maybe uh, an area to set up a trailer, right? So what I've seen was the company will put one person on that project when typically it would have five people, for example. And that one person is taking care of all of that when 
right away, once you get the award, you want to start putting in submittals. I used to get my submittals done, all the typical submittals. I used to get them done even before the award came in. You know, a lot of people are like, well, suppose we don't get awarded. Well, then you should be a little bit more confident in yourself, right? If you got all your paperwork, I mean, typically it takes a couple of months to get awarded the project too. So, I mean, you'll know more or less what happens. To me, that, that's just an excuse. So what I would do is we would assemble and one person would take care of the, of the real estate part and, and get all the offices set up and get the furniture and get the computers and get all that stuff set up. Then the, uh, another person would get all the, would start getting all the submittals done, or maybe a junior engineer as well, right? And right away, once you get the award, you call up the engineer that's in charge and you say, hey, I'm going to start hitting you with some emails. They're the more priority emails. And you, and you start hitting them with, with, with the submittals. One is the baseline schedule. You can't step foot on the job without an approved health, health and safety plan, a QA, QC plan, right? All that stuff is typical. You got to get that stuff rolling even before you get the award. Because once you hit the award, these schedules are getting more and more tight. So you really, really, once that clock starts, you got to utilize every single hour you possibly can to get that schedule moving. Mm, yeah. So the costs, the costs are, uh, you mentioned something uh, intriguing. I know we don't, we don't necessarily deal with too much is politicians. Is there any ways to mitigate that? And what, what are the types of situations that come up? Well, listen, a politician is a politician, right? Um, they even, you know, when the computer, when the community starts complaining, politicians, no matter whether they agree with the community or not, they gotta, they gotta make a big fuss out of it. Right. So the larger projects, especially here in in major in a major city, you know, literally you're 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 building highways, bridges and and buildings over people's heads. Right. So the community's right there. They're right at your fingertips. And, um, you know, you got to have a safe site. You got to have a safe site. So you got to try to mitigate exactly what they would normally complain about. Right. For example, safety. Obviously, you can't have stuff falling on sidewalks as people are walking. That that's a major problem. And um, you know, also like if, if if you're putting out lane closures, if you're out on the highway, you know, don't put out a lane closure if you're not if you don't actually have scheduled work for that lane closure. You know, how many times I I, draw, I drive by a lane closure and I see nobody working in that lane closure and traffic is backed up. You're going to get people upset. Now, there's a lot of instances where people are working overhead. And they put the lane closure out if, in case something falls out, out on the roadway. People don't really view it that way. So mm -hmm. this they can communicate it maybe with the sign or something, right? Exactly, exactly. But you want to send out flyers to like local businesses if you're going to interrupt businesses. And, and, and that's another thing, too, is you want to respect the local businesses as well. You know, if you're going to start taking out their sidewalk, you want to be able to have something in place where people can still access that business. Because if you're a small business, you count on every single day worth of profits. <laughs> so I hope that answers your questions. I mean, I can go on and on. Every single every single project site has its own has its own site specifics for that particular pro, uh, for that particular problem. Yeah. And how much is, uh, of it is setting up the uh, the contracts appropriately on the front end? As far as politicians go, no. Of, as far as successful project, you said cost overruns are rampant. Like, how much of it is setting up? the contracts uh, properly on the front end or is it just you bid it the way you need to bid it and then you just aggressively manage the project like how do you think about the whole thing this is a very big topic and uh, fortunately for me I, i've 
spent many years in estimating and many years in the field. So with that being said, it all starts with estimating, right? How are estimators getting their information? You know, I always vouch that an estimator should go out to the field at least at least once a month for a couple of hours and take their own, come up with their own historical data, right? And, and not always rely on the field to give them historical data. Because what I always found was the field always likes to fudge the numbers to make it look good when it goes into the boss's lap, right? So, you know, have your estimators. And plus, it keeps a fresh mind, especially for the junior estimators as well. So providing that the estimate is done properly and all the overhead is done properly because a lot of the profits run away at the end of the project. So I post about this all the time on LinkedIn about you know how to, how to keep track of, of your overhead costs that normally come to bite you in the butt at the end of the project, right? So providing that the cost estimate is, proper, is properly done, you know, the estimator should kind of give a presentation to the field operations to let them understand where a lot of the money is. On the commercial side, a general contractor is a construction manager. They hire all subs and they have a couple of people going around and, and cleaning up the job site. On the civil side, a lot of public works projects actually require you to, to self-perform more than 50% of the work. So your estimate is a lot of self-perform work, but you also have two dozen subs on that particular project as well. And in, in a lot of the major cities, they require you to have a certain minority participation as well. Over here in New York, it's, it's, it's up to 30%. So, and, and you're not going to get the job unless you have 30% of minority companies. So now you have smaller contractors who aren't even bondable who are coming on your job site and you're requiring them to do several million dollars worth of work. So how do you get that money out in the field? What I used to do is on public works projects, a lot of it is, is unit prices. So you have your unit prices and then you spread your overhead and profit and all those different unit prices. You put it into a spreadsheet and you kind of highlight the items that are green if they have a lot of overhead and profit maybe yellow if they're neutral or red if you took money out because maybe it's a cost underrun of some sort, right? But you need to relay that message to the field and give that spreadsheet to the field. And just putting your eyes on those items gives you a different dynamic, gives you a different perspective as a project manager of how to approach those items on the project. It gives you a different sense of motivation to push certain items and to not push certain items as well. Right. Okay. So now you got the job. So now you got that spreadsheet. Well, now you're out in the field. Well, how are you keeping your costs? I think that's where you need to work one-on-one -on -one with estimators. And I think that's where an estimating department needs to have a, 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 a time frame where estimators are communicating with the field, not so much. Okay. We got the job here now go run the job, but where they're still communicating with the field and they're keeping track of those costs and not letting those costs go over a month at a time, two months at a time. Because the further you let those costs run over, it's a, it, it becomes that much harder to, to recoup your loss. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. That's good. I like. I definitely love the specifics. I mean, is there other things you can think of that you commonly tell business owners in terms of uh, tricks or things that uh, help them run their business better? Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I've, I've worked for all larger contractors for a majority of my career, ranging from a hundred million to a billion. And uh, I, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I've seen what happens when there's too much red tape, when there's too much bureaucracy, when I've seen what happens when you micromanage too much. I've seen what happens when you don't 
manage enough. You know, I, I've been a part of great leaders and bad leaders. And 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 with all that being said, with the smaller companies is is just how how do you build your teams? You know, I, I mean, without your crews and without your people, you're you don't have a company. You know, you don't have a company. So um, I think the largest, largest problem is, is well, well, every problem is a people's problem, right? So how do you hire right? How do you delegate right? And then when you get those jobs and you start estimating and, you're, and, and, and how do you estimate right? And how do you get those estimates out to the field? I think every single company has their own unique personality, their own unique uh that's why I don't offer one service. You know, everybody's got has got some kind of a custom plan that needs to be implemented. So it's tough to say, but but again, every problem is a people's problem, right? So you know, how do we backtrack and and how do we make sure we fix that people's problem? Because people are always going to leave you. It's just it's just the way it is. But how do you decrease the chaos that happens when that person leaves you in the middle of a project as well, right? And, and, then that, and that's where you need to implement a system and, and a process and you need to be on schedule and you, you need to always be proactive. For some reason in construction, I think a lot of contractors, I think a lot of businesses is, you know, people don't really want to spend money unless they have to. But what's that mean is that they normally fall into a place where they spend money when they're in a reactive state, which costs them a lot more money than spending money in training to be proactive, which has better long-term effects. I think we could both agree on that. So how do you stay out of the reactive state and always be proactive? I think that's a question you just always need to ask yourself. And, and it's tough because it costs money, right? And, and, and you don't always have a tangible perspective on, on what you're spending money on, you know? Well said, Jerry. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.